From the founders of Mod Racing and the Northwest Rally Association, this is the Motorsports and Driver Development Show. My name is Katie Lobkovich, and together with Keto Brillmeyer, who is my partner in life and business, we have built the fastest growing rally program in the U.S. Through our work, we get to meet incredible people, and this show is all about bringing those people to you. Whether you are curious about what it takes to start racing, or you want to get advice from the best on how to improve, each episode will have something for you. Today we are talking to Leanne Janilla, a professional co-driver and the Canadian representative for the FIA Women in Motorsports Commission. We get into a lot of great topics like her approach to learning the sport from the beginning and even some juicy stuff like what to think about when you're ready to start charging for your services as a co-driver. We also spend some time talking about her work with the FIA and introducing young girls and women to motorsports. A personal passion of mine is talking to women about the ways that they can contribute to motorsports, even if you're not actually racing. The industry needs all kinds of people with different skills, whether it's in leadership, operations, or media. And we talk about it here in the episode, and I also want you to know that I've linked to a lot of the great work that they're doing in our show notes. Thank you for tuning in today, and always, you can follow along with our race series on Instagram or Facebook at Mod Racing, or you can find us online at modracing.com. Now let's hear from Leanne. Welcome to the Motorsports and Driver Development Show. My name is Katie. And I'm Keto. And today we are joined with Leanne Janella, who is a co-driver, but she is also the Canadian representative for the FIA Women in Motorsports Commission. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. We are so excited you're here. Um, I think it's probably best to just start all the way back in time and hear a little bit about how you got into racing and rally in the first place. Um, I started about 20 years ago and um, I started doing parking lot slaloms. I had a little Honda and uh, when I got my driver's license, I felt like they taught me how to park and not how to drive. So I didn't have enough, I wanted more confidence. So I went searching around to see what I could find and I just stumbled on the Calgary Sports Car Club. I'm in Calgary, Canada, so that's my that's my hometown. And um, I found these parking lot slalom races and I showed up and I paid my $20 and they loaned me a motorcycle helmet and I just gave it a try. Um, I dragged a friend from school uh, and he had a, a car that he brought out. We both tried it. He never showed up again. I got totally hooked and uh, I went to every event they had that year. And then I just started, I started doing other stuff from there. I volunteered at the uh, racetrack as a flag marshal a couple times. And then someone asked if I wanted to try uh, navigating at a, a, a club rally, like a time speed distance event. And I tried that and I thought, holy cow, this is a hard sport. I need to learn more about this. <laughs> um, and then I just started um, hooking up with different drivers. And um, there was a, my first season I, I competed with um, an old British fellow who had been around for decades in the sport. And so it was actually really great training because he he gave me good habits from the beginning. It wasn't like two newbies trying to figure things out on their own. Um, I, I had good mentorship from the beginning and that allowed me to get more interested in it. And he kind of supported me that first season. And then uh, I hooked up with another driver who's now my partner <laughs> and we built our first rally car together, which was a very old school um, Volkswagen Rabbit, like total grassroots. 
um, just your, your backyard build rally car. Um, and then if you, you follow the timeline from there, we just did as many events as we could. I, I raced at the grassroots level for about 10 years. And then um, Subaru Canada asked me to co-drive uh, with their national manufacturer team. And so that was my first step into, uh, into a professional team. And then I did that for a season. And then I got picked up by uh, the True Car Rally team uh, in the US, uh, which was kind of when I started crossing over to do US events. And that was an all women's uh, racing team that was fully sponsored for two seasons. They had six different women in six different uh, racing disciplines. So it was really nice to, to get to know some of the women in the other disciplines. We had Catherine Legg in the um, IndyCar and they, there were, yeah, just all different disciplines covered there. So, um, so that was a really neat experience, especially to be on an all women's team. Uh, and then from there, I, it just, just kind of grew from there uh, until a few years ago when I hooked up with um, Dave Wallingford out of Ohio, who's my current teammate. <laughs> and we've been together for the past three three years now as a team. It's so funny. Um, you just described the exact series of steps that we recommend people take. Get out there, try something simple and fun like autocross, go and volunteer, go to another kind of event, try co-driving. Like you just, you took all the steps that we talk about and I just love to hear that it's exactly <laughs> what you should do. It was very organic. Like I definitely never sort of went through school thinking I'm going to do this. I just sort of tried it and had fun and loved it and kept showing up and, and here I am. So when you uh, first drove for Subaru, that was, you know, like first professional drive. Um, was it vastly different? Were expectations different or was it just same thing in a different car? What was that was like? <laughs> it was vastly different. Um, I had spent most of my time competing in two-wheel drive um, and ended up, I was, I think, a couple-time Canadian two-wheel drive champion by that point. But to go from a, a Volkswagen Golf to um, to the top car in Canada was a significant learning curve. So we did some testing. Um, of course, they wouldn't have they wouldn't have brought me on if they didn't think I was capable. So uh, there were some um, hoops to jump through to make sure that they they thought I could do it and then um, we did a couple of events in the Pacific Northwest actually as practice uh, we did the Olympus rally and the Oregon Trail rally and then we started coming up and doing events in Canada and, and um, it was it was still quite alert like I, I didn't my performance wasn't perfect if I was to go back again and do it now I would be I'd be in a much better position, but we we made it through the season, and uh, and it it was really um, formative. It was really important for me to take that jump because it prepared me for everything that came after that. Yeah, it's just a whole a whole other level of professionalism, I imagine. Um, you said they reached out to you. How did they find you? Did did you know why they chose you? Um, Canada's, I mean, it's a big country with a small population, and so Rally is a fairly small community. So as you kind of grow in the sport and you get to know people and you start getting outside of your region and competing nationally, um, you get to know the, the group of people pretty quickly. 
and um, you kind of just build yourself a reputation as you do more and more events. And I was lucky; I had a good reputation in the community, and um, and I guess a few people recommended me, um, and they wanted to make the team uh, all Canadian. They didn't want to bring people in from uh, other countries, so uh, that was a bit of a leg up in that respect. Uh, so yeah, that's that's kind of how it came about. I'm sure you were not lucky that you had a good reputation. I just clear <laughs> on that. Um, but you mentioned that you were fortunate enough to drive with somebody who had a lot of experience at first, and then he taught you good habits versus starting out with a new driver. Tell us some of those good habits that you feel like you were able to pick up. Um, well, when I started, uh, this is going to make me sound really old, but there were no um, pace notes. They, they, that didn't exist in North America yet. Um, all the rallies were, were tulip style rallies. So you, they, they hand you the road book at the start of the event. And then um, the only instructions you get in the book are the important corners. Uh, and so you could be, you know, your instruction could be something like you've got a medium right-hand corner in um, 600 yards or 600 meters and then you are just counting down on the clock. And so he um, was able to teach me a good way of pacing myself and kind of counting that out in, in my head. And he also knew how to do all of the, um, the calculations for the transit. So when you're finished a, a speed section uh, or a stage, you have to transit to the next stage. And there is a time card and you have to abide by the, the timing system and the time card. And so because he knew how to do those calculations, he was able to just walk me through every step. It was like having a coach in the car all the time. Um, and then once, uh, I think I only raced for one year and then they started transitioning to the pace note system for rallies. So that was also really lucky timing because there were a lot of um, instructional classes that we were able to take it to, you know take advantage of at the time so they they were bringing in um drivers with experience to come and present before an event and say here's how you write pace notes and um and i knew that that transition was kind of coming and i was interested to learn how that worked so i actually reached out even before that happened to um andrew comrie picard who is a very well-known driver in the US and, uh, and in Canada and uh, asked him how pace notes work because I wanted to learn before they were, they were thrown on us <laughs> in the sport in Canada. And so he connected me with his co-driver who kind of gave me a, an instructional this long uh, in a big email. And then, um, and then my partner and I were able to go out and just kind of drive really slow down a little gravel road and, and practice writing them out and figuring out exactly what to do. So when that first event happened in Canada where um, we, we were running a pace note style event, um, we, were, we were ready for it actually. So it sounds like there's been a really big change from when you started until now where you guys used to run those uh, distance meters and the vehicles and I don't think very many cars have those anymore. I don't think um, it's been a real, real big change. And so do you think that the process for learning to be a co-driver would be similar today? Or do you think that 
process would be changed? You know, like where do you think somebody would want to start? I think, um, you know, there weirdly, it seems like there would be fewer written resources, but I know in the US um, there is a really good um, rally school run by the Gelsominos and they train up a lot of co-drivers and and um, I used to run a co-driver school in Canada and we've noticed that a lot, like at least at my school, a lot of the students we, we put through the school have stayed in the sport. There are a lot of people, even today I can look around and see, oh, they, they went to the school, they went to the school. And so I think throwing yourself into the sport without some kind of training um, or research in advance is really tricky. Like, holy cow, it's not an easy sport to just like throw yourself into. So yeah, either hooking up with a driver who has experience or um, seeking out at least a book or, or taking a, a course wherever you can um, will give you a huge advantage. And yeah, I was lucky that a lot of that stuff was, was just free and it was more in our faces when we started and now you have to kind of seek it out a little bit more but um but it's there there's a lot of people and it's such a small community that everyone wants to help you so that's another thing you can do is just ask around and say i'm really i think this is so cool how do i get involved um and people will just yeah they'd be they'll be happy to um mentor you through it's a hundred percent true rally people are always happy to there's no like hoarding of information so that no one else is there to compete against you it's like everybody wants the competition they want you to be there they want you to be involved and it's just so um genuine yeah and that that is true um all the way up the um all the way up the sport right to the top like when i when dave and i were doing the wrc events in mexico there were other co-drivers who mentored me through the the, the wrc events because the process is different the way things are, are the rules are different there the timing's different and so um those people have all become good friends now and now the community you know your your horizons just get a little bit bigger and bigger as you as you go to more and more events and branch out and, and in, in France, same thing. I have friends that I will, that will be lifelong friends now because um, we've, they've just been so helpful and everybody wants you to succeed. I love it. So talk a little bit about getting in a good groove with a new driver. How long does that take? What do you do to kind of build that up? You've driven with all different types of people. Like how do you establish a good rapport with them? Um, I think as a co-driver, you learn to be adaptable a little bit. Like in in a lot of ways, it's um, it's really useful to sit with the same driver because then you really get used to each other. You develop a, a style together, and you you build a strong relationship. But it's also a really good learning experience to hop around and sit with different drivers and learn how to be adaptable. Because really, as a co-driver. Um, your job description is to do everything you can do so that the only thing the driver has to do is think about going fast and keeping the car on the road. And so um, what that means for each driver is different. And so sometimes that's, in most cases, that's like a conversation before you go to an event or a conversation with other people who have co-driven for that person to kind of set up what, what their preferences are. 
And then once you know how they like doing things, some drivers want to check their own tires and some drivers don't want to think about it. And, you know, some drivers want to have a little more control over certain things. And some drivers are like, you hand me food and I eat it. And like, I don't want to think about anything. <laughs> um, and so if, once you establish that, like it's, it's pretty easy. And, uh, you know, I think, I, I don't know, I guess I've, I've got a pretty easygoing personality, so um, it's not very often that I sit with a driver that I think I'm going to lose my mind. Like, most people are really great in the sport, and even when you're under a lot of pressure, like, it's just um, you you understand what each other is going through. So, um, for me, it's usually not, it's not an issue to kind of, um, like, my job is to to help them out so that we can both do the best we can. And as long as I keep that at the forefront of my mind, we're, we're usually successful. So drivers have co-driver jokes. They make fun of you guys. Do co-drivers have driver jokes? Like, do um, you guys stitch it back? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> that is a good question. Gosh, uh, you know, these are the moments when I wish I was as witty as Jason Bailey. So that, <laughs> that is exactly who I'm thinking of. <laughs> oh yeah, he gives me a terrible time. And so, yeah, I, no, I don't have any <laughs> driver jokes. <laughs> he have a joke about the fact that you don't have any jokes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, it, he's going to text me right after this. <laughs> I, love I think he probably gives all his co-drivers a terrible time oh yeah so i don't think he picked you out of no <laughs> but it, and it's not just him it just kind of seems like there's this culture of like you like the co-drivers are the ones keeping everything going like let's be honest and so i think that like they have to poke fun at you in order to make themselves feel better but i wasn't really sure if like the poo was being so <laughs> <Both ways>. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit it depends on the driver some yeah some have their own special um reputations and kind of like and push that a little bit but usually that's like after the race or before right. the race <laughs> right that's a great point that's a great point so you have driven at the very amateur grassroots roots level but you've also driven at a professional level and the conversation surrounding co-drivers being paid for their time can be a little bit um what's the word contentious some people think there should be compensation some people think there shouldn't but in our minds we know that it takes a tremendous amount of skill to do. I mean, you've just talked through all the things that you have done to get to where you are, all the learning that you've taken on yourself. And that is a hundred percent worth compensation. And all the work that they do during an event. Absolutely. A huge amount of work. And so I'm curious if you have any um, advice to someone who's at the point where they feel like they can make a transition into being a code driver. Sort of what should they be thinking about? How should they be talking about it to potential drivers? Um, well, rally is one of those really interesting sports where you get people competing at essentially the Olympic level in the very same race as people who could be doing their first event ever. And so that's one of the big appeals to the sport is you get to hang out with these celebrities and, and you can compete anywhere in that range. And so that's the same for co-drivers. You can either be a beginning co-driver, you can be at the back of the pack and just out there having fun with your buddies. And, and that's a really awesome way to do the sport. And I did that for a long time and it's, it's fun. And then as you get more experience, like you said, you, you start, um, 
if you want, you start acting more like a co-driver who wants to really pursue it or or do the best job they can. And, and then you start focusing your skills more, trying to build your skill set, um, try to find mentors in the sport who can help you out. And then you start um, kind of building your database of, of stuff and you build your own logistics plans and you build your own um, notes for every event of, of, you know, what tires worked and what didn't and what were the weather conditions like and where are all the good restaurants and, you know, like that stuff that when you show up in that town, your team is going to rely on you to, to be able to lay it all out and say, all right, we need to be here at this time. Um, here's your plan for the weekend. Here's where you need to be and when we're going to go to this place for dinner because it's great. And here's what the weather conditions are usually like at this event. Let's talk strategy. And you can start to really become a coach. And as you get better and better at that, then there's a value um, for that kind of um, co-driver. And so I think when I started, I always even at the very beginning, I don't know why, I just always approached the sport as though someone was always watching. Because when you're, when you're at a rally, you're interacting with a lot of marshals, there's stewards there, you have, to, um, you have to race within a set of rules, and you're, there's, yeah, there's, there's rules of competition, and you're trying to do the most you can within um, within those boundaries. And at the end of the race, at least in Canada, we have to fill out an evaluation form to say what we thought of the event so that the event can look at that information and go back and make the event better the next year. And I always did all of my paperwork in a way that I thought someone's looking at this, so I wanna do a good job because I wanna show people that I'm trying hard and I'm trying to be good at it. And I, and that's, that's how you build a reputation in the sport. And that's how you start transitioning from um, just going out and having fun with your friends to wanting to be really good at something and, and develop a craft. Um, and that's, and, and at a certain point when you start getting phone calls from teams that you don't know, and that's your opportunity to say, um, you know, I would love to do this event with you, um, but I have a full-time job and I just need, I need my time covered. Like, that's, that's all I ask. And then you, you know, like, that's a good way to bridge that gap, I think. Once you feel you have the experience, but your, your, your reputation carries, carries you a long way in the sport because it really won't take very long if you start charging people and you and your skill set doesn't match, there's a discrepancy, um, that word would get around fast. So either that will boost you up in the sport or you'll get fewer and fewer phone calls. So it's a little bit self-regulating, I think. <laughs> yeah, so it sounds like you really want to be prepared then um, yeah. before you, you start asking for... And it almost sounds like you're, you talked a bit about like becoming a coach and it sounded almost like you go from... Um, I need a better analogy from like being driven to like driving the process, you know, mm -hmm. you start to take ownership of things versus just kind of being along for it. And I, that's a really interesting sort of pivotal point for someone to think about. 
Yeah, and it's it's a really fine balance too, right? Because you're there to support the driver. You know, the driver's the superstar. The driver's the one that the, the TV cameras follow around and they're signing all the autographs. So you're really there to make their job as easy as possible while trying to be as much of a leader and a coach in the background as you can. And if you can find that balance, then you've got something, I think. Mm. So speaking of coaching, as you're, you know, um, giving your notes back to the driver, the cadence and so on, can you control their speed? I hear co-drivers talking about that. Like if I start throwing notes at him a little faster, he'll go faster. If I, if I slow him down, he'll, he's like overdrive and I'll, I can pull him back. I'm just curious what your take is on that. Like, are you the puppeteer? <laughs> um, it, it works. It's, you know, it, it's not quite as simple as, as that, as just reading the notes faster or slower. It, it's, um, it's a bit of an art form, but you can, um, you can push them. And, and if you're reading the notes in a way that's not, uh, you know, if, if there's a little too much slack in the way you're reading the notes, then, then they would slow down as well because they can't, um, get the information that they need in time. And so, um, yeah, it's not as, it's not as cut and dry as, as I'm just going to read the notes faster, but you can definitely shape how they drive based on how you read the notes for sure. That's, that's kind of the art of it is, is coming up with, you know, you take all these individual notes that are, that's like right five, left four, you know, and they're kind of all pieces, but then how you take those words and build sentences is how you create the flow. And so you're painting a picture in the mind of the person sitting next to you based on how you group your words together into sentences and how that, how that kind of flows out of you um, as you're going down the road. And so it's this weird, yeah, um, kind of out of body experience when you're you're communicating without you know there's there's the spoken communication but then you also just kind of get this like sixth sense when you can tell when they're not concentrating and so you can enunciate a little more or you can tell when they're getting a little frazzled and you try to like calm it down and you know like there's there's ways to kind of change how you read the notes to um, to really be in tune with your driver. That's I'm just thinking about a driver getting frazzled. I would get frazzled too and we'd just crash. <laughs> you know, I always so, thought I should co-drive for him. I'm like, no, no. <laughs> so let, let me ask you this. So, you know, you drive uh, with Dave, but then you jump back and forth, seems like, with Jason. And very different cars uh, travel down the road at a very different speed and very different people as well and um so is it kind of like riding a bicycle you get in the car just sort of hear the voice and your brain all resets and you know you're giving them the wave that they need or or is it kind of take a minute how does that work um it, it i mean having a, a test day or or at least a, a, a shakedown stage before the event starts is really nice when you're like it's i would say fairly important when you're swapping between uh, uh, cars that ha and drivers that are very different and in the case of Dave and Jason or Dave and my partner Eric um, 
they they don't even order their notes in the same way. So Dave would put the um, the grade of the corner, the severity of the corner before the direction, and Jason puts the direction before the severity of the corner. So for Dave, it's a three plus right, and for Jason, it's a right three plus. And so when I swap back and forth, it's like speaking two languages. You know, you get used to it. And, and when you're just reading it on the page in front of you, it becomes easier and easier the more you do it to swap back and forth. But um, I remember the day that Dave changed his note system because he started out as a, as a um, right three plus guy and uh -huh. changed to a three plus right guy. And, um, and I was in a fog for the first race that we did because it was like really a mental shift that I had to make and so we got through the event of course um, but there were a few times where I you know was almost like twisting my tongue before I was saying a note um, trying to get my brain to like crank through the, the change um, and so now now that I've got experience on with both systems then it's no problem but um, but yeah oh having a little bit of a even a video review before you switch between drivers is a really nice like memory jog for um getting back into one system or the other yeah those are like directions you just don't want to mess up <laughs> why did why do you switch just out of curiosity yeah, i'm curious too i'm just i would think you know to switch for me would be like i'd be like you i'd fog and crash yeah what was his motivation i'd have to just read the road yeah uh, well, that was a, a, a formative time in his driving, and and when you start out as a driver, you um, you want to use someone else's system, really, just so that you have a basis for learning. Yeah. And then, as you get more and more experience in the car, you start to develop your own system. And so, again, it's just that organic development of of your own note style, and um, and the way that you you look at the road and the way you see the road is so specific to each driver. Even if you listen to the onboards um, for all the WRC drivers, their note systems are totally different. And so it's just a, uh, a way that you develop over time um, that becomes your most efficient way of looking at the road and translating that into letters and numbers that you can process instantly and react to. Um, so that was just part of his his learning as he went through and as as he got more experience he just decided that he wanted to hear the um hear the severity of the corner before the direction yeah yeah interesting. it's interesting yeah. um they say that like people who know <coughs> multiple languages they you know they process things like math better and all that i'm sort of curious like do, does driving with different rally drivers have the same impact like are you developing muscles in your brain similar to people who like know how to play music and things like that it's a yeah, hypothesis well, ask me some math questions i know we should do some kind of like cognitive testing on just co-drivers in general yeah. <laughs> every every interviewer just give yeah, them a test a series of questions. <laughs> great um, let's Let's shift gears a little bit. Let's talk about this work that you do with the FIA Women in Motorsports Commission. How did you get involved in that? Um, well, each uh, every country has a sanctioning body for motorsports, and <laughs> in Canada we have the ASN. And I noticed um, a, a couple of years ago that we didn't have a Canadian representative at the time um, on the FIA Women in Motorsport Commission. And and in Canada we have 
a lot of great racing. We've got the Formula One race in Montreal. We have the Toronto Indy. We have a lot of a lot of racing from the grassroots up to the up to the highest levels. And I thought we need someone at that table. Um, I, I can't believe we don't have a representative. And so I approached my ASN and I said, um, I think I can make a contribution um, if you would if you would support my nomination. And so they they did, and um, the the commission accepted the nomination. And so last year was my first year with them. And um, and the work they do is really cool. It's really um, a privilege to be a part of that and to sit at a table where there are um, 30 of the best women in motorsport around the globe and, and you've got a voice at that table and everyone's there to support each other and figure out how to make, uh, how to encourage more women um, to participate in motorsport in your own country. Um, so that's been like really, it's been a really rewarding experience um, and I've learned a lot and, and I've, you know, we've been able to put together a little committee of people in Canada who are, who are dedicated to helping try and get more young girls and, and women involved. So um, yeah, it's been really rewarding to take on that kind of mentorship role because that's something I've always been um, interested in, especially with young girls who are seeing motorsport for the first time. Mm. Uh, we did an event last year at the Toronto Indy where we had a bunch of, um, we brought a bunch of girl guides or Girl Scouts in the US to the event and we got them passes and we set up a little Discover Motorsport session um, where for the, the day they got to meet the drivers and they got to go behind the scenes with um, the Carlin Indy team where um, Sylvia Below is the, uh, is, was the assistant uh, or the deputy team manager there. And so she set up a bunch of interviews with different women in motorsport um, working at the Indy so that these girls could look around and see all the women that are doing all these cool jobs in motorsport and see what is possible. So that's, yeah, that's been really, um, really fun. That's really interesting. So sounds like you want to start them when they're young and groom them up into motorsports from there are you working anything sort of you know in the middle like with new drivers or anything like that you guys have what do you guys have planned yeah so one of the big mandates of the commission is um to help girls grow th through the sport and create kind of a ladder system where um their first introduction to motorsport they have uh, an event called girls on track where they set up a little um, karting slalom and every country or every country's representative is encouraged to try and set up one of these events so we can um, bring just general girls from the general public in to put on a race suit and a helmet get in a cart try a cart slalom, see what it's like, learn about different jobs and, you know, just have that first introduction to motorsport. And then we can connect them with karting clubs, try to get them into go-karting um, or indoor karting or as they get older, um, auto slalom uh, or rally. And, um, and the ones that show promise, the commission is really committed to try and help these girls up through the sport so they can be successful and find careers, whether that's in 
um, engineering or being a mechanic or a driver or a journalist or you know there's this world of of careers in motorsport that most girls don't know about and they don't know exist and there's a there's a a careers booklet that they just published and even I flip through this booklet and I go oh I want that job I want that job that looks so cool <laughs> oh, that's so cool um that's something that I try and talk about I don't get a lot of venues to talk about it but I do try and encourage people to look beyond just the opportunities to drive I think that specifically women don't recognize that there are contributing roles, there are leadership roles that they are very qualified for, and having that di diversity in thought and diversity in background really is what will grow and expand the sport. And so I might add, is it like, is it an actual booklet or is it a link online? If you go to FIA.com mm -hmm. and there's a link right at the top that says mm -hmm. women, and if you click on women, there's a, there's a link to the careers booklet there. And it is, it is so cool. And, and that's a, a lot of the reason they want to start getting more young girls introduced is because, you know, there's so few women at, at these upper levels of the sport. And really the reason for that isn't because women can't do it or wouldn't be interested. It's because there's not very many girls at the grassroots level at the bottom starting out that, that it, you know, they just kind of thin out so much by the time you get to the top of the sport. So the more girls we can get interested um, at the grassroots level, the more that will filter up to the top of the upper levels of the sport. A hundred percent. I know this year has been a little funny, but I'd love to hear what you guys are planning on working on next whenever we can all do things. Yeah, it's, um, wow, it's been a wild year. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a good time to kind of step back and reflect and, and um, plant a garden. Um, uh, but yeah, Dave has just relocated to an, a new shop, so that's really exciting, and he's he's transitioning all of his stuff over, and um, we're all kind of keeping in touch and watching the world news and getting ready for when events start going again. So we have no idea, of course, when when uh, we'll start actually competing again, but. Um, uh, let's see. I mean, the the Women's Commission and and Women in Motorsport Canada are doing work in the background, um, and so there's some cool projects coming down the pipeline there. Um, if you look up a, a new series called Extreme E, um, there that's a new electric series that's 50% um, male, 50% female, and it's electric SUVs, and so they. Um, it's set up so that um, each team drives and co-drives for each other. So there's a male and a female in each vehicle, and it's like a rally sprint style, short stages. And then you you do a stage, you swap drivers, and then you Whoa. do another stage. And so every you know the the team, both members of the team drive the vehicle, and your score is combined. Um, Interesting. At the end. So that's that's the one Patrick Sandell's doing, right? Yeah, there's there's a bunch of um, yeah, there's a bunch of actually really top level drivers involved with that, and the the FIA Women in Motorsport logo is going to be on on those cars. So that's a really cool project, and and it's it's 100% equal. Like it's a really cool racing series. So I hope that that um, 
I hope that that is a successful project because that's a brand new um, format that we haven't seen before. Yeah. Where are they going to be? Where are they going to be racing? I mean, I've heard about the series, but I haven't heard any specifics about like where they're going to be hosting these races. Are they going to be all over or just? My dog's popping into the screen. I know. I see some ears. I'll get pop up on the sofa. Um, they they have I think five events scheduled right now, and they're they're global. So I think mm -hmm. the only two I can remember offhand. There's one in Saudi, and there's one in Greenland, which I've never heard oh. of motorsport there. So. Uh, and we don't know when that'll get started either, but some, um, but yeah, keep an eye out for that. Um, and let's see what else is, what else is coming down the pipeline. There's, um, gosh, I think we're all just waiting for, uh, stuff to get moving again. Um, yeah. We haven't been able to run for the last few months and then, and we weren't supposed to be able to run until a few months or two months from now. And then all of a sudden there was a change and they were like, actually you can have events. They just have to be really different. No spectators, that sort of thing. So we went from thinking two month ramp to two weeks. Yeah. And so it's just been this crazy scramble. Like we've had all this time. We've kind of kept everything. Waiting for weeks, <laughs> and then it's like, Oh crap, here we go. <laughs> so I have a question for you guys. When yeah. the events start going again, what do you think the um, turnout is going to be like? Oh, we uh, sold out in two minutes. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Everybody, yeah. I think everybody wants to get out of the <laughs> yeah, house. Everybody wants <laughs> out. <laughs> they, any excuse they can, they but, can have, you know. But yeah, we have to really restrict it. Like people have to come by themselves mm -hmm. and you know, spectators. And we, when we tech the cars, they remain in the car. They don't get out. Um, that's good. You know, so we do it all visual. They have to show us all the tags through the window, that kind of stuff. We were really clear in advance of everything, of what the safety protocols would be. You know, there is a little bit of disagreement about whether or not the protocols are appropriate. And so we basically just put out there, like, this is what we have to do in order to be able to host races. Yeah. Sign up if you can abide by that. And mm. we've had a really great response to it. I think people mm. just know, like, we're all mm -hmm. doing our best. Yeah, people are knocking on our doors for, for rally sprints also. We'll yeah. Some of the higher speed stuff. So I think because there haven't been stage rallies and they keep getting pushed back, so they're like, we'll take anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I think establishing really good safety protocols is going to draw more people out because then they don't have to worry about um, how, how risky that um, attending an event like that would be. Yeah. Mm. And we're lucky even at the point where we can have spectators back um, for us in Washington, it, it, the plan was for that to be near the end of July, but our events are outside. So you're not crowded in a grandstand. So mm -hmm. people will still have the space to spread out and hopefully find a way to enjoy the event that they're comfortable. So that's just a byproduct of rally and rally cross. And so we're really thankful for that. Mm -hmm. Trying to fill grandstands or having grandstands where people are, you know, six feet apart is just, a really interesting experience. Yeah. Sounds like stage though most of it is um getting enough volunteers and mm -hmm. having the meetings. Like we we do we do all our drivers meetings and our, our sign ups and everything are all virtual mm -hmm. so that we're not actually grouping people together to have these meetings. So that's also part of our, our new protocol as well. So but I mean that'd be a lot more difficult to stay. I mean, how would you stage captain Given for you know disseminate information down the line. I mean, it's, that'd be tough. You know, and some events have really poor connectivity, so getting information out digitally actually might be a challenge at some events. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. We'll see. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah. It's all really interesting. It's all, um, yeah, it makes, I think it makes us better having to think creatively. We had to get really creative when we weren't racing about how to talk to people and keep them engaged and remind them that we're still here. So I think for us, we all get to be better because of it. I hope other people feel the same way. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Well, Leanne, thank you so much for your time today. This has been such an interesting conversation. Tell people where they can find you online. Um, you can, uh, first and foremost, come and follow Women Motorsport Canada because we feature all the amazing Canadian women who are in all different jobs in motorsports. So our, we have an Instagram page, which is um, WIM, W-I-M, Canada. Cool. And uh, you can follow me on Instagram at um, Janilla, which means there's a quiz and you have to know how to spell my last name. So it's J-U-N-N-I-L-A. So L Janilla on my Instagram. So yeah, go find both of those feeds. There's cool stuff on both of them. Fantastic. Thank Excellent. you again. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I love, I love rallying in the Pacific Northwest. Some of my favorite <laughs> events are there. So and it's close to home. Yeah. Well, you're you're welcome back on the show and at any races here anytime. Absolutely. Thank you so much. We'll see you as soon as we can get there. <laughs> thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and learned a thing or two from Leanne. If you did, we would love to know. And the best way to tell us is by sharing the episode. Take a screenshot and post it on Instagram and tag us at Mod Racing. Mod is spelled M-O-D-D because it's an acronym for motorsports and driver development. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And if you want to support the show, please take a minute to leave a rating and review. Thank you for joining us. We will catch you guys next time.